Check recording. Check. All right. Grace, peace, and mercy are yours from the triune God. Amen. So, I didn't plan on this, but I'm going to give you some insight into both my writing process and the plan for today. Um, It's not that I procrastinate, but up until the last few hours, most of the time the sermons exist up here and on on a notepad like this. And then at the last few hours, I transcribe them quickly so that they are nice and pretty and easy to read because my, one of my preaching professors said, you need to preach from a manuscript. <laughs> um, so I got up early this morning and I went to Starbucks and I typed oh, the first 1500 words of the sermon. And then it was time for me to go get my mother and take her to her church. And then I went and um, to an Episcopal church I've been visiting up in Greeley. And um, oddly, one of my best sermon writing times is during other people's sermons. <laughs> and so I wrote out a whole bunch to the end of the sermon um, with the plan of after I would go back, get my mother, take her home, we'd drive through someplace to get di- lunch, I'd go down, I'd transcribe and edit what I had written during the sermon. Um, We made it as far as the go get my mother and start on the way home when somebody rear-ended my truck, Um, rendering it whores to combat. (laughs) Um, And so the afternoon, instead of transcribing these notes, became wait for the police, wait for the insurance company, wait for the tow truck, borrow a car from my sister-in-law. So we're going to have an adventure. (laughs) I'm going to say a bunch of words, and maybe you'll be able to put them together into a sermon, and we'll call that preaching. (laughs) Because the other unfortunate thing is that the notes that end up in this book are not linear in time. Sometimes the endings come well before the beginnings and the middles just fall wherever they happen to be. So let's go. If you were here last week, you might remember Jim taking three tries to read that first Proverbs reading while waiting for a live microphone. If you were paying really close attention, you might realize that the text Jim read was exactly the same one that was just read a few minutes ago. (laughs) If for some unknown reason you were paying attention to me as Jim read, you would have seen me squirming in my chair, checking my phone, and just in general giving my biggest what the (laughs) face. Because that text, according to all the lectionary references, is for this Sunday. (laughs) Um, And I had already prepared. (laughs) Well, so we get, but fortunately for me, Cindy did not preach on the Proverbs text. 
She preached on the gospel text. She can have it. We've had enough bread. But we need to talk about the Proverbs text. Um, and it, I think it's a good thing that we have heard it twice now, especially when you consider that for many Sundays out of the year, including tonight, we say a response to it. If you look in your bulletin on page 13, you'll find the prayer after communion. May we who have fed at wisdom's table take her welcome to where tables are reserved and doors are closed. So we respond to that text all the time, but we never hear that text. Like I say, this is an adventure. Um, I've always loved the little prayer incorporating the female Im image of wisdom and us in having done this great thing and carrying our specialness out on what feels like a great mission to the rest of the world. But if you go back and read that text, maybe you don't feel so good about yourself. When you um, read the text, you're forced to remember exactly who it is that has been invited to wisdom's table. It's not the learned or the powerful, or really except maybe in a pejorative meaning, those that are special at all. In the New Revised Standard Version, here again, who exactly is invited? She has sent out her servant girls. She calls from the highest places in town. You that are simple, turn in here. To those without sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Or from a much older tr translation, whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mingled. Suddenly, being one of the ones that is eaten at wisdom's table doesn't feel quite as special, maybe, does it? Those of us who are simple and without sense. Many of you know that I'm returning to school after a 12-year hiatus. Somehow, I'm an undergraduate again. Granted, I'm considered a fifth-year senior with 157 credit hours, <laughs> but still an undergraduate again. Because it amuses me, I keep my new student ID card in my wallet right next to my AARP card. <laughs> but tomorrow is the first day of 23rd grade for me. I'll be taking abnormal psychology, experimental psychology, applied statistics, and a, an English class that just sounded fun, traditional and contemporary grammars. It does, it sounds fun. But aside from the classes I'm taking, primarily as prerequisites for a graduate program I hope to start next fall, a big bonus for me about being a student is that I now have unlimited access to a big academic library and to all the various databases of journals and other publications out there on the web. I was digging through, the, through those databases the other day looking for things on this text and on the character of wisdom in general. And amongst all the many, many things that have been written, I stumbled on a monograph by the English poet 
and scholar James Merrick, written in 1744. A dissertation on Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, containing occasional remarks on other passages in sacred and profane writing. Even at that point, 1744, 300 years ago, 200 years ago, um, a lot had been written trying to figure out what this text was about. But, didn't, but Mr. Merrick didn't think much of any of what had been written. As his monograph opens, the obscurity of this text has been much increased by the industry of those who have undertaken to explain it. I shall not make it my business to examine the many various comments and wild conjectures with which the different expositors have perplexed it. Much ink has been spilled in particular in trying to figure out the line about she has hewed her seven pillars. Nobody knows what it means. Apparently one of the key ideas about it um, was dependent on the fifth verse of the chapter, 17th chapter of, the, of what was known at the time as Ecclesiasticus, which is known today as the Wisdom of Sirach. Um, and when you read that verse, it makes sense that this would be something about the seven pillars. They received use of the five operations of the Lord, and in the sixth place he imparted to them understanding, and in the seventh speech, an interpreter of the cognitions thereof. I mean, that makes it obvious, right? We've got this. The five operations of the Lord plus understanding and speech would be the seven pillars of wisdom. The only problem with that neat little solution is that there actually isn't a fifth verse of the 17th chapter of Sirach. If you have a Bible at home that includes the Apocrypha, you'll find that the 17th chapter goes directly from verse 4 to verse 6. If your Bible is particularly scholarly, you may find a footnote telling you that some people believe that there's a fifth verse that goes in there. But most scholars think that's complete bullshit or something to that effect. <laughs> so not being smart or creative enough to invent Bible verses out of the whole cloth, I'm not going to attempt to perplex the text any further. Where I want to look is at what happens between the time when we, the simple and the senseless, are invited to the table and to the moment when we're asked to carry that welcome out into the world. Back at the beginning of August, Reagan sent out an email with a listing of those of us who would be preaching and those who would be presiding over the time he was gone. Next to my photo, he identified me as houses, Presbyterian in residence. He was making a joke about how I'm the one on housekeepers who was always bringing up questions of process and order two things near and dear to the heart of all Presbyterians. It may sound odd with me standing here before you preaching, um, but there are a good number of people in the world who, having known me in a passing way, would say that I'm a very quiet and shy person who almost never speaks. People who know me better and who have suffered through the phenomenon will tell you that's complete crap. In fact, they'll tell you that there are some subjects that once I get on them, I will never shut up about. Star Trek is one of them. The Apollo program is another one. And just as high on the list are Presbyterian polity and theology. 
so you've been warned. If you have anything to do for the next few hours, don't ask me any questions about those things. There are a few other subjects that I'll go off on just as easily, but I'm going to keep them quiet so you can be surprised when you stumble onto one of them. <laughs> I bring this up for a couple of reasons. One is that I was given the challenge of mentioning the Apollo program in this sermon. <laughs> the other is that the obvious thing that happens between our being invited to Wisdom's table and being sent out into the world to share your welcome is the meal, the Eucharist. And I wanted to stress that what I have to say about coming to the table is very highly colored by what Presbyterians have to say about what happens there. And what Presbyterians say is often very different from what others, like, say, Lutherans have to say about it. During the announcement at the start of, the lit of every liturgy, something is said about the bread and wine, which we believe to be the body and blood of Christ. Having been raised to be fairly polite, I don't say, well, I don't believe that, <laughs> at least not out loud. But the truth is, to Presbyterians, the, the bread and the wine are not the body and blood of Christ. It all starts with a na man named Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was a contemporary of Luther, whose basic thesis was, it was a metaphor. He was standing right there when he said it was his body. It was only ever a metaphor. It was never meant to be taken literally. Nothing happens to the bread and wine. It's just about remembrance. Now we go back farther into the adventure. And then this guy, John Calvin, comes along. Um, and please, despite, or maybe because of my love of th all things Presbyterian, don't start asking me questions about predestination or the exact, or the elect and the reprobate, none of that. If you have questions like that, I'll be happy to lend you my copy of the Institutes. <laughs> have fun. But anyway, Calvin came along, and he liked a lot of what Zwingli had to say, but he couldn't quite go so far all the way along with Zwingli to say that it, nothing happens in the taking now we get to the nonlinear part. Of communion, but, but the remembrance of Christ's life and sacrifice. For Calvin, there had to be something miraculous in the sacrament. But he couldn't bring himself to say that the miracle happened to the bread and the wine. Now, Calvin says that the miracle happens to us. In the taking of the bread and the wine, in the sacrament of communion, Calvin says, God literally reaches down and lifts us bodily into the true, real presence with her so that we can experience for that instant what the kingdom of the Lord will be like. More exciting page turning. Other page turning.
We can try for years and years to decipher the Proverbs text, and people have done just that and done them nothing much more, but as Merrick says, perplexed the text. But what we can know is that wisdom, whoever she is, whatever she's doing with those seven pillars, she has been chosen by God to be the one who welcomes us to God's presence. Um, whether, excuse me, whether it's through direct contact with the body and blood of Christ or by lifting us up into the real presence of God herself, God has chosen wisdom's table to be the place where we come closest to God. And it's the place where all of us, the simple and the senseless, wrong, the simple and the senseless are transformed into the ones who can carry wisdom's welcome out into the altars of the world. Amen.